Taking your Bibles, turn to Acts 22 with me. Our reading begins down at verse 22 and goes over into Acts 23 a little bit to verse 11 of that chapter. Acts 22, verse 22. And to just give you a little assist before I do the reading, the title of this message is God advances by circuitous or excuse me gospel advances by circuitous providences. Sometimes preachers love their titles way too much. <laughs> and I'd really love this one. It's possible even in a sinful way. What does the word circuitous mean? It means longer longer than the most direct way. But that doesn't even say enough about why I'm using this word in the title. The circuitous providences of God for the advance of his gospel are not just longer, they are often deeper, darker, marked by suffering. It is God's good pleasure to advance his gospel, not by putting his men, his women, his churches on top where the world is now looking up to us and overwhelmed with our earthly glory. He puts us on the bottom in the prison cell under the cross. And as the world looks on us down there and that we are still ruled with the hope and joy of heaven, that we are still so rich in a heavenly treasure that we cannot stop following the one who keeps getting us in trouble with the world, Jesus Christ. Then the world begins to see under God's sovereign direction that Jesus is worth more than the world. He's worth more than being on top. That's the circuitous providences that are most common in gospel advances. And beloved, that is why our apostle is under arrest. And then the next chapter, he's under arrest. And then the next chapter, he's under arrest. And guess what? In the next chapter after that, he's under arrest. And then after that, he's still under arrest. And the book closes with our apostle under arrest. But the gospel is advancing. Let us pray. Gracious God, Help us now, we ask, to hear your word in its public reading. We have unbreakable confidence that this is what you want done. For Paul writes to Timothy, give yourself to the public reading of Scripture. And help your people in the preaching of what is read. And we have unshakable confidence this is what you want done. For Paul tells Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. So, Lord, with every confidence that we can have that what we are now about to do is right, we ask for your blessing upon what is right. Lord, we don't deserve it. We have underprepared for it. But by the mercies of Jesus Christ who has answered for every one of our sins, especially our worship sins, we ask that you would come and bless your people. Bless us so that we hear 
that we believe, that indeed we are even reformed by your word and spirit, and that our lives are evermore clean instruments in the hands of the Redeemer. We ask that this would be so to your praise, to your honor, to your glory. Make us firm in our faith of Jesus Christ. In his name we ask, amen. Acts 22, verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, He unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, He cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. 
This ends the reading of God's word. What would other Christians think if when they learned about hard things that happened in your life, you kept saying something like this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Some people might be really disturbed to hear you talk like that. They might think you are downplaying suffering or evil behavior. Just imagine hearing something like this. My parents' divorce has really served to advance the gospel. My difficult marriage has really served to advance the gospel. My getting carjacked downtown has really served to advance the gospel. Losing my job has really served to advance the gospel. Our house burning down has really served to advance the gospel. My bike accident has really served to advance the gospel. The amputation of my finger has really served to advance the gospel. My loneliness has really served to advance the gospel. My injury, my paralysis, my cancer diagnosis has really served to advance the gospel. I want you to know this. I want you to know. What all these statements are saying is that hard things that happened have allowed the people watching my life to hear of the great salvation found in Jesus Christ. People drew near to me, they drew near to you, they drew near to Paul, and instead of hearing us talk about how angry we are that these things have happened, they hear us talk about how Jesus, our treasure in heaven, is still secure there. And that all that is happening to us isn't touching our treasure. Hard things have made eternal salvation even more precious to me. Now, we might find this kind of thinking strange. There may even be people in Christian churches who don't welcome this kind of thinking because those people want to complain about what happened to them and not rejoice and how it served to advance the gospel. But Jesus Christ wants to renew our minds, doesn't he? He wants us to think rightly about all that happens to us. So Jesus determined, in Paul's case, that the Apostle Paul would be arrested. That was not Paul's determination. And Jesus determined that while Paul was under arrest, he was brought before the men in Jerusalem, the great men, the top men. And then, while he was still under arrest, later he is brought before the top men in Rome. And at some point, while he is under arrest in the city of Rome, which we'll come to, Paul wrote these words to the Philippians. I want you to know, brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers 
having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Philippians 1, 13 and 14. How did the graces of the new man, which are the graces of the risen Christ, how did they become so ripe in Paul that he could look on what happened to him with peace, with joy, with purpose? This happened in Paul because there is a relationship between our knowledge of God and the ripening graces of God in us. The more we grow in one, the more we grow in the other. This is why scripture says we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. 2 Peter 3.18 We are not to remain children in our thinking. In your thinking, be mature, Paul says. 1 Corinthians 14.20 Which is why in another place, he says, quote, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Colossians 1.9 It is Paul's knowledge of God that allows him to look on what happened to him differently than the way the world does. And it will be the same with you, believer. As you grow in the knowledge of God, you will grow in the grace of God. Spiritual wisdom and understanding will fill up your life as Christ pours the knowledge of his will and his ways into you. Now, let's make this more specific. What did Paul know about the Lord that freed him to correctly read whatever happened to him? What did he know about the Lord that freed him from complaining, from shutting down, from quitting? What did he know about the Lord that freed him from giving up when hard things happened? Paul knew, Paul knew about divine providence. And he knew this, and you must know it too, to grow in the grace of the Lord. He knew the Almighty God, our Lord Jesus Christ, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, actions, things, from the greatest even to the least. This is clearly a statement of divine providence in verse 11 of our text, when the Lord Jesus himself stands next to Paul in the middle of the night and says, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in, Jer in Rome. Paul is going to get to Rome. He didn't know that before the Lord made that known to him. Paul is being built up in the grace of God by the knowledge of the ways of God. So, this is divine providence. The Almighty God, our Lord Jesus Christ, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least, which means the Lord is nearer, nearer to us than we thought 
which means the Lord is more active in our lives than we thought, which means the Lord is more assertive of his will in the details of your day than you thought, which means there are more occasions for us to praise the Lord and thank the Lord and appeal to the Lord and rest in the Lord than we thought. Several years ago, some men in our church spent a few months reading through a wonderful book called The Mystery of Providence by John Flavel. First published in 1678, the book takes the reader into these deep waters of divine providence to discover that it is not random chance, but the living God who orchestrates all events and circumstances in the universe for his glory and for the good of his people. This is providence. In the book, Flavel says, two things destroy the peace and tranquility of our lives, our bewailing past disappointments or fearing future ones. Knowing God as the mighty master and loving Lord of providence is powerful medicine for all the bewailing and all the fearing that is creeping about our soul. The Apostle Paul spoke of divine providence back in Acts 16. Acts 16. Oh, excuse me, Acts 17. He said to the philosophers of Athens, It is God who made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Acts 17, 26. So it is God who determined the year and place of your birth. It is God who determined the kind of family you were born into. Its size, its temperament, its duties, even its genetic diseases. It is God who determined the way your body would look, the shape of your nose, the sound of your voice. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Psalm 139, 13. It is also God who determined the afflictions that would come against your life. Natural disasters, accidents, small nuisances like traffic jams or bugs. And even it is God who determined the sins that would happen against you by the reckless or by the design of the wicked. God even orders and governs the dark things, the sinfulness of which belongs all to man and none to God, but it is God who governs it without ever being the author of it. It was a profound awareness of divine providence that allowed Joseph to say this to his brothers. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people would be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Then a verse later, 
Genesis 50, 21, Joseph says, or it says of Joseph, thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The face of Messiah is coming through in the life of Joseph. Hundreds and hundreds of years before he's born of Mary. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. No one could see that when Joseph was sold into slavery by his own brothers, that those brothers would one day bow before him as a lord of Egypt. The very thing they designed with evil intent for his ruin was instrumental for his advancement. That's the hand of divine providence. Divine providence always rules, and it often overrules the ill will of men. But let us understand something. It was not just Joseph being kept alive that was the purpose behind the divine hand of providence. The ultimate purpose was for Joseph to be a comfort and to be a kindness to God's people. For Joseph to use his power and his exaltation to deliver his people from the curse of a famine that had come upon Egypt at the time. This means Joseph's life, Joseph's life was a foreshadowing, a foreshadowing of the mediation that Christ would undertake for the sins of the world. Like Joseph, with wicked intent, Jesus was turned over by his brethren, the Jews, to other wicked men, the Romans. But by the governance of divine providence, Jesus' troubles led him right to the cross, the very place he wanted to be. On the cross, Jesus canceled in his own death the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. But how did he get to the cross? The conspiracy of his enemies under the control of providence led to the completion of his work. Wouldn't you love it if your work got done that way? <laughs> the conspiracy of our Lord's enemies led to the completion of his work by divine providence. And his death led to his resurrection on the third day, and his resurrection led to his ascension 40 days later, and his ascension led to his enthronement at the right hand of God, where he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel seven fourteen the great ascension passage of the Old Testament. Which brings us back to Acts 22 and 23. All throughout redemptive history, the Lord has been testifying to his people that he advances his kingdom of grace through a circuitous series of providences that often put his people down in the depths. And it is from there, as the testimony of an unconquerable hope ripens in them, that even though they are losing the world, they are set upon the God who is above the heavens, set upon his comfort and kindness. 
they testify that there is something greater than what men see. And here the Lord is doing it again with Paul. I want you to know very briefly these three striking moves of providence in our passage today. Notice quickly now the providence of Paul's birth, the providence of Paul's rebuke of the high priest, and the providence of Paul's perception of a divided council. Now, you might think, boy, that was the longest introduction to a sermon I've ever heard. That wasn't the introduction. That was the preamble to the introduction. No, I'm, I'm teasing. Now, these, I didn't want to spend a, a ton of spade work time in this text today, but I wanted to teach you the providence of God, but I don't want you to think that I just made it up, that it's not before you. I'll show you now how it is all over this text. And that's what we're seeing here. So look at the providence of Paul's birth. In in chapter 22, verses 22 through 29, Paul's birth, which he had nothing to do with, becomes a providential move to advance the gospel of grace. Paul was born a Roman citizen. He is a Jew. In fact, he's already announced back in the previous chapter before everybody in this crowd on the, on the, on the, in the temple area, but not inside the temple, but he says, I am a Jew. But he said nothing about his Roman citizenship. So even though the tribune heard him say, I am a Jew, the tribune does not think he's a Roman citizen until they get to this moment of the flogging. And so Paul shrewdly uses the fact of his Roman citizenship And he puts it in the ear of the centurion, who is preparing him for a flogging. The centurion suddenly stops everything on this report and brings this news to the ear of the tribune, his ranking superior. And the tribune becomes afraid. Not afraid because he was just about to flog Paul, but afraid because he has already put Paul in chains. And you never show that a man is condemned who is a Roman citizen without a trial. So the tribune is afraid, and this results in at least three advances for the gospel in itself. One, Paul keeps his health. If Paul had been flogged, it is very possible that he would have died right there and he would never have gotten to Rome. A flogging at the garrison of Antonia in the city of Jerusalem often kills a man. And if it doesn't kill him, it often paralyzes him. And if it doesn't paralyze him, it makes him immobile for weeks. Paul's health is kept so that he can travel and so that he can speak. It is very possible that if he had been flogged, even his throat would have been ripped open by those long leather straps wrapping around the body with little bits of glass and stone in them to pull away the flesh. The same that were used on the back of our Savior and even at the same location. The second way this first providence of Paul's birth advances the gospel, the leaders of the Jews are summoned to come in and hear Paul speak. (laughs) once the tribune realizes that he has a citizen, he's going to set up another trial 
And Paul is going to get to speak before the top men of Jerusalem again, instead of lying on a cot, bleeding to death. And three, the tribune now becomes a protector of Paul's life. A citizen is in the care of the tribune. He could lose his commission if a Roman citizen dies at the hands of a mob without a true and just trial. And that's why you see later in chapter 23, in verse 10, that the tribune is again afraid that Paul could get torn to pieces by the, fat, the Pharisees and Sadducees as they start violently arguing and fighting in this room. And so he sends, get down there and pull him out. All of this advances the gospel, these simple providences that relate to Paul's birth. Number two, the providence of Paul's rebuking the high priest. This is at the top of chapter 23, verses 1 through 5. The high priest, Ananias, treats Paul as if he is already condemned, though no trial has taken place. That's why Ananias issues this command to strike Paul on the face. Ananias issues punishment before investigation, before witnesses, before evidence. Now, Paul apparently does not know this man is the high priest. Now, Augustine and Calvin both think Paul did know it. And they think that when Paul says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, that Paul's being sarcastic. That Paul's saying, no high priest would have me struck. What kind of high priest is this? It's, it's a little bit speculative, I'm afraid. Paul does not know this man who ordered him to be struck is the high priest. And so in his ignorance, which is also providential, what Paul doesn't know, in his ignorance, Paul speaks the truth about the lawlessness of this supposedly great man of the law. And this word from Paul actually goes into the official record against Ananias. This is a clever hand of providence. Now, in the record of eternal scripture, it is written down from one of his own victims that the high priest in Jerusalem was a man of lawlessness. Why is he a man of lawlessness? Because he brings punishment upon a man who has not been tried. And this turns out, Paul's words turned out to be God's true testimony against the leadership of Israel at this time. The Jews, for all their possession of the law, for all their possession of the covenants, for all their possession of the priesthood, they are no better than the Romans who just a few hours ago were ready to flog Paul until they learned that he was a citizen. This is an indictment of Jewish leadership, and it is preparatory for what is going to happen to that city in 70 AD. The Romans will come and they will level it and burn the mortar between the stones. And it is God's judgment upon a lawless people who minister lawlessly in the name of the law. And lastly, number three, the providence of Paul's perception of a, of a divided council. 
This is in chapter 23, verses 6 through 11. Notice this verse. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Paul perceives this is a signal flag for a providential moment. Paul realizes the men in the room are not all Sadducees. There are Pharisees present. And the Pharisees are the conservatives. They believe that the scriptures are the word of God. And they believe in the resurrection. They believe in angels. They believe in demons. They believe in the spirit. The Sadducees do not. They are the materialists, the secularists. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees make up the council, known as the Sanhedrin. And there are enough Pharisees in the room that Paul perceives that he could divide the assembly by shouting out that he is a Pharisee being brought up on trial for the very doctrine of God that half of the men in the room believe in, the resurrection. And Paul, of course, succeeds. He divides the assembly. And then he ultimately shifts a loud faction of the Pharisees, in verse 9, to his side. And they start to declare his innocence. This will not release him from arrest by the Romans, but it will bring an end to this pesky situation where he was about to be torn apart. Now, let us not overlook that when Paul says, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial, he is thinking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is his core theological announcement, that the man you crucified is enthroned at the right hand of God. He has been raised on the third day. He has conquered that enemy that has been conquering the race of men since the fall in the Garden of Eden. Who is that enemy that none have conquered and all have been conquered by? Death. Jesus of Nazareth has conquered the great enemy of the human race. And if that enemy has been conquered, then Jesus, as he himself says in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. This is what Paul wants his trial to be about, that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord and that everyone is obligated to hear his claims on them, for he alone holds the keys to death in Hades. And if you have death in your future, if it's on your calendar, then you have something to deal with Jesus about. That's where Paul wants his trial to go. Now, a wonderful thing happens. And this comes in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Beloved, where does the Christian 
find their courage? Where does the Christian find a spirit that isn't full of bewailing disappointments? Where does the Christian find a spirit that is not sunk by fear of the future? We find it in a Savior who is risen to the right hand of the Almighty and who knows where we are, who knows how to minister his mercy and power to us at just the right moment. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. His attending to the Apostle Paul is, of course, somewhat different than the way he's going to attend to you in your Christian life. Jesus is not going to appear at your bedside in the middle of the night. But his attending to the Apostle Paul in this way is the same in another way in which he is going to care for you. The risen Christ comes to you. He comes to you through the preached word. He comes to you through the privately read word. He comes to you through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. He comes to you through the sacrament of baptism. He comes to you through the communion of saints. He comes to you by his Holy Spirit. And he testifies to you that he knows right where you are, right exactly what you're fearing and afraid of, exactly what you're bewailing, exactly what you're dreading, and he assures you that everything is a going according to plan, that his providential hand has appointed it for you for a purpose that you need to be renewed to see. This has happened to me to really serve in advancement of the gospel so that you could testify to your family, to your friends, to your neighbors, to the world, that even though you are crushed by this fallen and cursed world, your joy, hope, and courage is secure in the heavens, for there is your flesh and blood in Jesus Christ. You probably know the story, maybe you don't, of the Civil War General Stonewall Jackson who was chided by a captain that he was standing dangerously out in the open. Captain, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to always be ready, no matter when it may overtake me. Captain, that is the way all men should live, and then all would be equally brave. Don't fall into a vain spirit that you are being scolded by that statement for not being brave. Cry out to the one who will always hear your cry. Lord, let me not turn my eyes away from hard providences. Let me see them and think about them as I ought, Lord. Clear my eye, Lord, to let me see that you have put me in a fix. You have put me in trouble. You have put me under trial. You have made my life what it is. And all this has happened to me to advance 
the gospel so that I would speak of Jesus Christ, worship Jesus Christ. Even your continued Lord's Day worship is part of his strength in you. One of my favorite prayers by a theologian concerning providence comes from a fellow that you may have heard of, Blaise Pascal. He wrote this prayer in his book, I ask you neither for health nor for sickness, for life nor for death, but that you may dispose of my health and my sickness, my life and my death for your glory. This is what I ask. You alone know what is expedient for me. You are the sovereign master. Do with me according to your will. Give to me or take away from me. Only conform my will to yours. I know but one thing, Lord, that it is good to follow you and bad to offend you. Apart from that, I know not what is good or bad in anything. I know not which is most profitable for me. I know not which is good for my health or, or, or is sickness good for me. Is it wealth or poverty? That discernment is beyond the power of men and angels and is hidden among the secrets of your providence, which I adore, but so not seek to fathom. Beloved, the risen Christ in your own nature, with your name upon his hands, is enough to testify to you that every providence, every falling out upon your life, high or low, hard or soft, the risen Christ testifies that every one is for your good. He who has given up his life for your sin can now not turn hard against you. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we pray, O Lord, that we would ourselves grow in our knowledge of who you are, that we would do some of the heavy lifting to better understand this doctrine of providence which is so clearly drawn with a scripture pencil. We pray, O oh Lord, that we indeed would grow in that knowledge of you so we might grow in that grace that is from you. That we would be so filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding that we would not misread our lives. That we would not be so entangled in our comforts that we wouldn't want to be used in extremities to testify to the great worth of Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us for all our grumbling, all our complaining, all our griping, and forgive us for the other sin, the ditch on the other side of the road, of telling ourselves that we were not suffering, we're not afflicted. We're not under a trial. Lord, keep us from lying to ourselves about the means that you have appointed to advance the gospel. Let us not hide and cover up our weakness and limitations and pain. Let us instead testify to 
the great wisdom of providence and setting these things upon us so that we might speak well of a treasure that cannot be eaten by moth nor rust, the risen Christ. Help us, O Lord, in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.